Blog Talk Radio. Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. Thank you for spending time with us this evening. The purpose of this program is to share information about the dangers of trusting without verifying and encouraging you to do your own research. It is not about politics or religion, but sometimes these topics cross with the medical field. The guest experiences and opinions are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or producer. I guess you could sometimes say it's food for thought. We provide resources so you can find additional information, so you may want to have a pen and paper handy in a few minutes. Today, our elderly are being called under the guise of helping them, being enticed to hospice by promises of better care, showers, sitter service, light housekeeping, meals, and more importantly, having a nurse come to you so you don't have to go to a doctor or a hospital. It's like a one-stop shop, but you're at home. Sounds like it's too good to be true, doesn't it? It is. And the viruses that are looking around every corner that are more harmful to the elderly or those with comorbidities are rampant. And now let's give those same elderly people experimental shots. Our elderly are at risk every day, and they need to be protected and advocated for. That's where we all need to come in and stand up. That's the what, and the why is greed to save money for the government and industry, to make money for greedy people who show no ethics, morals, or compassion, and the commodity is our unsuspecting loved ones. And, of course, we've also heard about depopulation. The primary focus was originally on hospice, but we have found out it is happening in nursing homes, long-term care facilities, and hospitals. Hospice was created for the actively dying to minimize pain, but today... It is a legal mechanism for hastening death with toxic drug, overdoses, starvation, and dehydration. So I promised to give you some information and resources, and I'd like to give you some of those now. An excellent resource for a list of the drugs and their effects is halovoice.org, which protects and advocates for the rights of the medically vulnerable. And they have a helpline that you can call with questions or concerns if your loved one is in a facility or if you're considering putting them in one. That number is 888-221-4256. 
And if you are aware of the dangers yourself and you've been there and you want to help, they are always looking for volunteers. They also have a sample legal life affirming medical document that could save your life if you're in the hospital, as well as much more information. Michelle Young Doers was a hospice respiratory therapist who wrote the book Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, where she exposes what really happens in hospice facilities about the signing quotas, promises made to patients but not kept, and how the patients were ultimately betrayed by the very people who were supposed to be compassionate. She is a true warrior speaking out against the treatment of the elderly and the disabled. It's an excellent book. It has medical information as well as stories about some of what she witnessed. Another resource is LifeLegalDefenseFoundation.org, which has access to pro-life attorneys in most states within the continental U.S. If you're trying to get your loved one out of a bad situation, they might be able to help you. Their phone number, 707-224-6675. And they also have information if someone is trying to entice or force you to take the COVID shot and you don't want to because it is not mandatory. There is a book called Stealth Euthanasia, Healthcare Tyranny, that was written by another hospice nurse, Ron Panzer, and he saw firsthand what was happening and goes back to talk to us about eugenics and how did we get here. You can download this book for free. In Canada, you can find information on a medical document and other important information at Euthanasia Prevention Coalition at epcc.ca, and they have a helpline. 855-675-8749. And while I know this is a lot of information, if you didn't catch that, you can always listen to our programs. They're archived. Or you can contact me at Marsha Joyner, 2018 at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to share that information with you. And I think you may have all heard that last year the prisoners were released from many of the facilities because they were concerned that they might get COVID and they might pass it along. But then they sent COVID-positive patients to the nursing homes where the most vulnerable people who had committed no crime other than being old lived and many died. I believe this was intentional and they could play it off like uh, they died with COVID and nobody would say anything. I think they miscalculated how important those people were and are to their families. In many cases, hospice staff were invited to come to the rescue because they understand the dying process. You bet they do because they orchestrate it masterfully. My mom was one of those victims in the year of 2017. So this brings me to my guest tonight, Nicole Marie, who is a member of our Facebook group, Murdered by Hospice, and she reached out to the group for support after her grandmother, Patricia Shank, 
age 85, was found dead in her closed room on January the 21st, 2021, during one of those very lockdowns. She died alone. Last week, if you listened to the program, our guest Sarah, a nurse with Frontline Canadian Nurses, challenged us all to use our strengths to help find ways to help other people. She mentioned opening up a small home where people could take in two or three elderly and take care of them. Listening to Nicole tell me about her precious grandmother and her sacrifice to help other elderly people reminded me of this challenge. You see... Her grandmother, Patricia, started a priority home where she took care of people up until 2018. The system she fought against would be what ultimately cost her her own life. And I'll let Nicole provide more information on her grandmother, Patricia Shank, and tell you how this story ended for her grandmother. Patricia, I'm sorry, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us tonight and I'll turn it over to you and let you tell us about your grandma. Nicole? Nicole? Marty, is she on mute? Okay, I'm not sure if we have lost Nicole or Marty. So... Um, Let me tell you a few things about Patricia. Nicole, if you hear me and you can talk, go ahead and start talking. Her grandmother opened this home up in, I believe, the year 2007, I'm sorry, 1970, and had a home where she would have people come into the house and she would take care of them. They were elderly ladies and gentlemen. And if they would run out of something Um, It depends or anything that they might have that might be paid for by someone else or by their pensions. She would cover that for them because to her it wasn't about the money. It was about taking care of the patient's needs. And to 2018, now think about that this lady passed in 2021. So she had been doing this for years and was still operating under taking care of people. So I find that very, very tragic that that happened to her. She had gone into a rehab facility after having breast cancer and having surgery and was doing better. The lockdowns came, and she wound up having to stay in there. But they were in the process of trying to get her out, but she was quarantined. So it wound up being a really bad situation for her. So she couldn't get out. They could not bring her out. And at one point, Nicole was talking to her on the phone because they couldn't come in to see her. And she stepped outside her room or just to the door to ask for a glass of water. And Nicole could hear someone screaming at her to get back inside her room, which she did. And I believe that this was a couple of days before they found her not breathing in her room. So 
I'm, I'm hating to tell Nicole's entire story, and I don't know if I'm still alive. So when they found her, when the coroner came to pick her up, he even stated that something didn't look right, and I will definitely let Nicole tell you that. Okay, I'm trying to check with Marty. Um, Nicole says that she's on, but that she can't get in. Hold on, let me see if I can get her unmuted. Um, Nicole, are you unmuted? I know she was anxious to tell her story. Uh, Nicole says she's muted. She can't get. She can't talk. Okay. We're getting technical support here. Okay, hold on a second. And sometimes we we do have a problem. Sometimes it will mute. Um, typically, we will hear that something is muted, and this time I guess we did not hear that it was muted. So the facility that her grandmother started was called Summit Elder Lodge, and it was a family-type environment where people could come in and live in the home and be protected and be taken care of, and I'm assuming that she prepared their meals. And this was in New York City, and I think you may have all heard that in New York City is where they had one of the biggest problems with the people being put into the facility not allowed out. Many of them had their wheelchairs taken from them, as Sarah was talking about last week, so that they could not come out of their rooms. And Basically, they were held prisoners. But you have the people in the prisons that are released so that they don't catch COVID, and then we want to give it to them. So... um, I'm going to back up so that Nicole can tell her story and talk more about the drugs that they use. So if a person, Nicole, can you talk now? I hear can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Yay! Okay. <laughs> Yay! Okay. I didn't want to tell your grandma's story. So let's go back. It's okay if you repeat something that I've said. So okay. go ahead and talk to us about your grandmother. Alrighty. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you guys so much for allowing myself and my family the opportunity to remember her and share her treasured story, honor and celebrate her life and her love here today. This truly is a blessing. I don't really know if I can do my grandmother justice with my view of her, speaking on all she overcame in her lifetime, but I'm genuinely grateful to have this time to really bring her back some life and be able to share her legacy with others to bring meaning to who she was as a woman. Exactly. advocacy that she did throughout her time here on earth, who, you know, to others, to myself, to our family, but the friendships that she made and the lives she touched throughout her one single life, because the amount of lives that she touched in one way or another is just truly remarkable. She had life, will, and dreams left in her, a vision that God told her she must continue. 
that her work here was not done. And she expressed this all day long to anyone that would listen. Um, Our grandmother was 85 years old. She literally was the leader of our family. And beyond that, our grandmother was a huge influence on our community as well. She had no problem standing up for what she believed in. She could handle some of the most outrageous situations without losing her dignity or grace. I don't think there was anything that she couldn't or didn't do. And there wasn't anything that she did halfway or that she didn't do with her entire heart. And just giving examples, it, you know, would range from a playground for children to play in in the community, um, a skate park for teenagers to keep them out of trouble. Uh, You know, she even had meetings set up with donors to help get funding for this skate park, to getting a little pharmacy put into our little village. And she really took a stand against New York State, fighting for her love and passion for the elderly. She lived to make people happy and feel loved, even beyond us, her own family. She didn't want anyone to ever go without but she would go without, and no one would ever know. She was a woman that saw things so much differently than anyone I've ever encountered. Everything to her was beautiful and precious. She saw no wrong, no, you know, evil in anything. Something was always beautiful. She showed acts of love in ways that would be hard for anyone that didn't truly know her to understand. She um, owned and lived in and ran a proprietary home for the elderly. For 30-plus years, she made it her mission to take in elderly and some younger mentally challenged residents as well. She charged less than nursing home costs. She was number one in the state of New York. Her residents had beautiful rooms with hand-picked quilts, you know, that she would buy out of her own pocket. I remember she would get so excited. She'd get ready and paint a room, get it all ready for the new resident to make them feel at home. They would play games. They won real prizes. She would even personally take them out for drives if there was a resident saying having a bad day. And elderly people have bad days, sometimes all day. Mm-hmm. But she would take that person And, you know, even myself as a child and, you know, maybe one of my cousins, we'd go out for ice cream or go pick tiger lilies with them. She worked her own overnight until she couldn't any longer. She never paid herself. She didn't pay herself a salary. She kept residents that couldn't afford to stay in private care that, you know, generally would have ended up in a Medicaid, Medicare state-run facility, locked away and forgotten, neglected, or abused. She was insanely intelligent and compassionate when it came to her residents and what they needed, but most importantly, what they didn't need, things that weren't healthy for them, such as medication. She always had the best interest of her residents' lives and family lives at heart, and she really made sure that each resident had a personal one-on-one attention and a treatment plan and lifestyle catered solely to that individual. But then in 2018, due to her age and, you know, other circumstances, 
our grandmother went into the hospital. And upon, I can't remember exactly what it was that she had went to the hospital for. It wasn't anything horribly serious. Um, she was, you know, generally fairly healthy. But upon being released, it was brought to our family's attention that she was in need of short-term rehabilitation to help her regain some strength in her legs. They still worked, just not as good as they used to. She would scoot all over the place in her little wheelchair. She was able to pull herself up and do things on her own, but she needed a little help. So she then went for the first time to the Commons, which is in Auburn, New York. It is a short and long-term care facility. She wasn't there too long before she wanted to come home. What had supposed to have been a short-term rehab stay ended up in a long-term recommendation. They moved her from the first floor to the third floor of the facility and began, you know, making her into a full-time resident. They gave her, you know, the normal, the power of attorney papers, papers to fill out for an appointed health care proxy, medical release form, which I'll get to, was super important because of her allergies. Normal routine, I imagine, that a lot of people go through when they enter this form of care. 2018 was not great, but it wasn't horrible. But then we began to notice things change. Our grandmother began to change. Her mind was beginning to fade. She was still doing her thing, but something was different. We began to think she was in the beginning stages of dementia. And other things became quite disturbing along with that as well. She would call me all day long, happy most times, but nighttime would come and there was a drastic difference. She was agitated. She was so sad, confused, and being raised in her home, I had seen other residents of hers go through something similar to this. And I began to think that she was showing signs of sundowner syndrome along with dementia. So our family contacted the facility numerous times and asked them to please have her looked at. There's medication that can slow the progression of the disease. Days and weeks, soon months went by, that we were all steadily receiving phone calls and our visits were overwhelmed with concern that this facility was doing nothing. My grandmother would call me and say she hadn't seen a doctor. There was so many times she didn't feel well, and I'd sit on the phone with her for a long time. One day, while she waited for the facility doctor to see her, he was there, but he passed her room. He didn't see her. At that time is when we started calling the nurse's station. We really started demanding answers and demanding someone to see her or we were going to personally pick her up and bring her to her own primary care physician. They, of course, assured a family member of ours that they would have their doctor look at her the next time they were in. Before this could happen, we were receiving phone calls from our grandmother that she wasn't feeling well and wanted to go to the hospital. This woman took her health pretty seriously. She had told us that the nurses told her she was fine. Nothing's wrong with her. We then called the facility and requested ourselves to call 911. Myself, my cousin, were both told so rudely that that's not happening. Their doctor will make the judgment call. 
We weren't allowed to go pick her up and bring her to the hospital. Nothing. The facility doctor finally did a little something. He ordered some test scans, et cetera. She ended up having a massive UTI and some other issues. They gave her some medicine, and things were a little quiet. That place is and was the worst experience ever. Our family grew more and more disgusted, and we began making arrangements to bring our grandmother home. They were not giving her packages we were sending. Food, after a few months, we had found out the staff was taking her belongings and, I'll quote, holding it behind the nurse's station. I'm sure with my grandmother having dementia, she certainly remembered every day to go ask for her peanut butter and crackers or her Pepsi. She loved a Pepsi once a day. She just wanted a Pepsi. Mm-hmm. Two beautiful quilt sets that were her favorite that I had brought her from her own home were gone. She wasn't eating. She was giving her own food to other residents that were hungry. If we went in for a personal visit, she was always wheeling herself down the hallways with a bag of candy or food. You know, she was handing it out to everyone. Eventually, she was moved to a different room because she was too hands-on with other residents. She would always try, you know, and help her roommates get dressed, or she'd even try helping them feed themselves. She was always into something. But it was never with bad harm or, you know, nothing bad towards anybody. She was always trying to help. My saddest, yet the most precious memory of my grandmother being in this, I'm going to quote this too, it's a murder house, is this one little lady who was dying shortly before COVID-19 hit. And all of our loved ones were locked away. Was the day my children and I went to visit her. And she was down the hall in this little woman's room. This woman was dying. There was no family. She was all alone. And our grandmother was sitting beside her, holding this woman's hand, telling her all about the Bible and God and this, you know, new life that she's going to get when she's ready to let go. And my grandmother sat with her, making her feel at peace. My grandmother's peaceful energy and her words alongside this lady, holding her hand until she passed. Every time we went to visit, all you could see was the nurses and hear them at the nurse's station talking, giggling, standing around. They don't take breaks at the same time, and they couldn't even be there to help this woman. But when COVID-19 came is when we really became uneasy with our grandmother being there because it put a halt on our plans to move her. We already knew our experience with this place and the staff, and we grew inside ourselves with, with fear. It was a deep fear. But deep inside, I know for myself, I remained hopeful, knowing that, you know, my grandmother is a fighter, and she's a survivor, and she would make it out of this, and she would be home with us finishing her new business model for her new home for the elderly and continue her fight for change and state licensing issues with regards to elderly homes and big corporation-run facilities. With the COVID-19 lockdown and isolation of all of our loved ones came the lottery system with our senior citizens. It was horrible. What's the lottery system? Can you explain what that is? 
a lottery system, I kind of feel like they took the worst of the worst, uh, you know, the ones that were disposable. It was just, you know, they kind of picked and choose who got to live and, you know, who got treated fairly, uh, just like a, a lottery system, you know. And meaning that that some some did not get as much care as others. Is that what you're trying to say? Right. Correct. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. She was she was one of the disposable ones, is what I call it. But throughout COVID, we were able to speak with our grandmother. We listened to her get worse, cry that she was worried about her family. She couldn't understand what was going on. Why no one was able to visit her. It was heartbreaking. And having dementia made these conversations even more confusing and hard on her. Every day, one of us was explaining that we love her, and as soon as the lockdown is lifted, we will be right there to get her. We tried to bring her peace and tell her that she wasn't alone and (laughs) to remember that. Eventually, months went by. No cases were in the facility that she was in, and we were thanking God hoping that soon we'd be able to bring her home. One day, as I sat on the phone with her, I listened to her ask for a glass of water. The nurse told her to get back in her room. I couldn't understand why she was being told, you know, to get back in her room, so I sat and listened. The nurse came back around again, and my grandmother excused herself from me for a moment and asked again for a cold glass of water. She was thirsty. The nurse again told her to get back to her room. My grandmother politely said, well, sweetie, I can get my own glass of water if you're busy. The nurse then started screaming for her to get back in her room. This is horrible, listening to someone yell and speak to her the way this woman was. The nurse stated she, as in our grandmother, should know by now that they aren't allowed out of their room due to COVID. Um, She has dementia. (laughs) I immediately hung up with my grandmother. I messaged my cousin to tell her what was happening. And we both, again, called the facility and got the nurse's station with all of their babble. Soon we began to push harder for her removal of this place. We could clearly see it was going to be the end of her, whether it was mentally or physically. This place has nurses that think it's funny and okay to mentally abuse and neglect a person with dementia because they won't remember anything. But our grandmother's behavior reflected whatever she was going through there. Summertime came, and still there were no visitors allowed. Our grandmother grew more and more confused. Calls were beginning to decline as she grew frustrated with her cell phone and no one willing to help her dial a number or help her answer her own phone or charge it, because apparently that's not their job. Our calls became more shoddy as time went on with her not having the mental stimulation that she needed, as we all need. Our family carried on the battle with the facility, requesting information from the nurse's station daily, especially if we didn't hear from her. We would leave a package or a message to tell her that we love her and to call one of us with a number attached. Very seldom did she get that. 
And if we dropped off the package, we would have to track that package through a chain of people. December of 2020, we received a call from her that she wasn't feeling well again, and she wanted to go to the hospital. She wanted one of us to come pick her up or call an ambulance. Now, if she wants to go to the hospital, that's telling us something's wrong. As she felt like she was going to faint. Again, we called the nurse's station. They assured us she was fine. But just to shut us up, they would have their doctor look at her. Apparently, when she hung up with me, she rolled herself out into the lounge area and used the facility phone and dialed 911 herself. She was caught by the staff. The staff then told the 911 dispatch that there was no need to send an ambulance. She was placed back in her room. This morning, our grandmother had a seizure. Not once, but twice before they did anything. My grandmother has zero history of seizures. I would imagine that itself would warrant a trip to the hospital, but nope. The second one happened while they waited for the site doctor to get back to them. Our grandmother made her DNR and I think it's called a MOLST instruction uh, pretty clear, and a trip to the hospital was warranted, and they should have honored that immediately. Once she was at the hospital emergency room, it was made clear by the doctor that someone with no history of seizures, this should have raised red flags. It was also noted that the facility she came from sent no medical records, no information regarding her health. During her stay at the hospital, she seemed to be doing well. She was happy chatting with the nurses. She was out of breath and, you know, confused, but that was pretty normal. It wasn't, you know, horrible behavior. But three days later, she was cleared with antibiotics to go back to the nursing home. When she arrived, she was put on the first floor for observation. She seemed to be doing better, minus the being out of breath. Like I said, that was normal for her. And her confusion due to the dementia, but otherwise she was okay. And our family began to feel a little peace. But then we got the call around the of January, along with many other families. The home she was in was hit out of nowhere with COVID-19. And we got the worst at that time news that she had tested positive for COVID-19. And they were moving her to an isolated area for COVID-19 cases, the COVID floor, which was the seventh floor of this building. This was an absolute nightmare. We couldn't figure out how she got it, what was going to happen to her. So many things flooded through our minds, and our hearts were literally broken. But we remained optimistic because the entire time she was on the seventh floor, we had daily checking with the nurses that would tell one of our family members at that time that our grandmother, she was doing great. She has no symptoms or signs of it. Her vitals were good. She was up and walking with a walker. She hadn't walked with a walker in two years. Nothing to be worried about, right? They were going to give it some time, and she would be moving back to her main floor as soon as she's cleared to go back. Things were okay. We were preparing to bring her home as soon as we got the okay that she was negative. My aunt called me one day and said she had spoken with a nurse, and grandma's test came back negative. And we were beyond excited and filled with relief because 
to us, this meant she made it. We can bring her home. We were just waiting for the doctor to okay her to go back to her unit, you know, with her belongings that they wouldn't allow her to have. They wouldn't even allow her her own cell phone in the COVID unit. My aunt had to go out and buy a little burner cell phone so we could talk to her. They took everything from her. She had nothing. And so we waited, and while we made it, we made plans to bring her home. The 19th of January was my aunt's birthday, and she did a FaceTime with her grandmother. It appeared that she was groggy, sleeping perhaps, mumbling, not looking so well. But the nurses assured my aunt that everything was good. Her vitals were good. Everything was fine. The 21st, I received a message from my cousin telling me it was urgent that I needed to call. Something was wrong. Our grandmother was pulling out her IVs and refusing medication. She just wasn't acting right. So I immediately asked what they were giving her in her IV because this type of behavior clearly was not our grandmother. Time passed before we got an exact answer. It was maybe an hour, but it was long enough to wait for an answer. And long story short is that she was being given morphine and benzodiazepines. At that point, I had screamed that they are killing her. She is allergic to morphine. Anything with codeine, our grandmother was allergic to. Our grandmother had breast cancer. She was a survivor. When she had her breast removed, she didn't take not one pain reliever, but she took Tylenol PM. We told them to stop all morphine treatment, asked them if, she, if they knew that she was allergic. One nurse said, no, it's not in her medical records. That was a lie because then the next nurse stated, well, yeah, we know, but the doctor said it was okay in small doses. In what planet is giving someone something they are allergic to okay in small doses? Is it okay to give someone with a peanut allergy a small lick of peanut butter? <laughs> no. Well, let me ask you this. At that time, was your grandmother stating that she was in pain? No. No. Okay, so there really fine. was no valid reason to be giving her the morphine. Right, exactly. Okay. She would never. She would ask for a Tylenol. If she wasn't feeling well, she faithfully would take Tylenol. Now, was she, because um, sometimes, you know, they do give a small amount of morphine for breathing, a s small, small amount. You said that she sometimes had problems breathing, but was she on oxygen at this time? No. Nope. Okay. She wasn't on oxygen. So anything. there were alternatives. No. There were alternatives if they needed, if indeed she did have problems breathing, there was something else they could have done instead of Correct. giving her something that she's allergic to. Okay. Correct. I just wanted yeah. to, okay, gotcha. Yep. Uh, it, it made no sense, but little did we know that it was all too late. I will never forget going to bed that night. And my youngest daughter bringing me my phone saying that my father was calling me. It was so late. I got up, I went to the bathroom, and then my other cell phone went off, and it was my oldest daughter. At that point, I already knew deep down what the call was. It was that call that our grandmother had passed away. They killed her. They called us to let us know. They found, and I quote this every single time, 
they found her body on third shift change. Mm-hmm. After they called us to notify that she had passed, we had a lot of anger. I still have anger. We have sure. and have no idea why they were giving her morphine. A healthy woman, every day, vitals are great, they're good, she's going back to her floor, she was up and walking, to giving her morphine and benzodiazepine that, again, she was allergic to. She did not die peacefully. She was being suffocated, strangled internally, dizzy, and helpless. She knew what was happening to her, trying to remove her IV, and they still forced it into her and lied to us daily. It makes no sense. Why? Her own social worker was clueless, had no idea this was happening. She was under the impression our grandmother was being moved back to her floor as well. This truly made and still makes no sense. The next day, we were told they had put her on I quote, comfort care, why would they put an otherwise healthy woman on comfort care? Because she had dementia? Because she was a thorn in their side? Because she advocated for her rights and the rights of her peers? Uh, Let's face it, she made sure to make a lot of noise while she was there regarding her rights and the other residents' rights to know what Mm -hmm. is going on with COVID-19 and why. They were being held hostage. She held a meeting with other residents on the third floor in the dining hall, explaining what they were doing was wrong. She wanted answers and an explanation. Mm -hmm. And apparently they were tired of explaining anything to someone with so much passion and someone having dementia that even through the dementia, her passion never went away. I bet that made their jobs a little harder. And it makes me absolutely sick. Our grandmother's wishes were ignored, who gave someone the right to make this judgment call. Like, she was a one-legged sick dog that was unable to be rehabilitated. Who has the right to override her own written wishes and instruction? Repeatedly, our family's opinions and wishes were ignored. This place did what they wanted to with her. She said no to the COVID shot. We as her family said, no, COVID shot. I sit and I look at her records, and they sure enough gave her the shot. She died in a matter of two and a half weeks after allegedly having this shot, along with 49 other residents at the Commons owned by the Loretto Agency. Our county health department and the state of New York has yet to do any form of investigation This should have raised more than eyebrows when in a matter of almost three weeks, one nursing home out of an entire county had 49 deaths. The county as a whole had 75 cases. I believe it's 75 cases. It might be 78. And 49 from this one facility alone. They have only provided excuses and a bunch of lies. Well, (laughs) the thing is, that they had, and, you know, you've heard about the PCR test and how they have been given false positives on that. But the fact that they were given her morphine and Ativan, and -hmm. they say, you know, the certificate states that she died, failure to thrive with COVID-19, I believe is what you said, yeah, that that says. But 
they gave them morphine and Ativan. The hospice is great at manipulating and executing people. And a lot of the people that they say that had COVID, I highly doubt that they did have it, but it was easy for hospice to slip in, and this was a quick and easy way to get rid of the elderly. Nobody will ever convince me that this was not part of a plan, and New York City has huge numbers of it. And obviously, in your county, for them to have almost 50 cases out of 75, I mean, they were just taking people out right and left. And hospice came in. They asked hospice to come in because they were familiar with it and they could deal with this and deal with the families. They're familiar with it because they euthanize people. Ativan and morphine, the dehydration, because they're not going to give them any food. They're not going to get anything to drink. Even if you put it there, they can't drink and eat it if they're in a coma. Right. So when did you get to see your grandmother last? Because I know you talked to her on the phone. Yep. um, I think it was Easter of 2009. It was right before everything got shut down. We had brought a lasagna dinner over there and had a little meeting. And that was the very last time that we had seen her. During COVID, she had a great, great grandson born Uh, you know there was five generations of us and she never got to meet him i'm so sorry nicole it's just so tragic you know it's always tragic but to be kept away from her for that long and she obviously did not have super bad dementia she was still quite alert because she was able to talk to you. She didn't like the fact that she, her family wasn't visiting her, but she understood that it wasn't you not coming to see her. It was the lockdown. Right. Exactly. It's just so sad. It's so sad that it is. they, they didn't did get that. a final visit. They didn't get a minister. No. You know, she was religious. They got nothing, nothing. And didn't the coroner say something to you when he went to get her? Oh, there was no coroner. They called the funeral director to pick her up. She was the very last resident that he had picked up, and he was not allowed inside the building to get her. She was wheeled down to the lobby before he even got there. He thought that was extremely weird, considering the fact he was overwhelmed and exhausted with the amount of bodies that he had picked up from that place in two weeks. It was unreal. Mm. It's just unconscionable that the elderly are treated like they don't matter. And that happened, it happens every day, but it happened in large, large quantities in states across the country this past year. And I think they knew what they were doing, and it was easy to just, you know, put those people aside and, you know, get rid of them, get rid of them. And no thought given to the fact that they have been taken away their mere existence of having their loved ones come in and see them. You've taken all of that away from them. And a lot of the patients in 
if they do have dementia, it's like your grandmother was a precious lady. I, I think I would have loved your grandmother. She went into people's rooms and helped other people. And I'm sure they didn't go in and feed anybody. So if somebody didn't eat or drink because they didn't know to or they couldn't get to their table, they didn't care because they're old and they don't matter. And that is so wrong. I mean, this is what happened back in the Nazi days with Hitler. They were considered useless feeders, and that is what they have decided that the elderly are. They're not worth the money that it costs to keep them alive and keep them healthy. And, you know, as many of our current people have said, you know, well, they're old, what difference does it make? Well, it makes a lot of difference to their families that love them. That's right. So I just, I'm, it just is sickening what has happened to our people. So after this happened, um, did you contact somebody? I have contacted lawyers. I have left reviews. I have I have been in touch with so many people, you know, trying to get it out there. I've contacted, you know, newspapers and all types of different things. And what I've come to realize is some of these lawyers – I'm I'm having a problem with select lawyers. You know, they they ask you what the death certificate says. And once you say that the certificate of death states COVID-19, it's all over. They want to lump you in into a class action lawsuit, which is it's fine. It's, you know, if it brings, you know, peace to somebody for a class action lawsuit, that's fine. But I really personally want someone to sit down, look at my grandmother's records with me, and say, you are right. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I want this facility in charge. I, I want, you know, I want this place taken down. I want it shut down. I, I want whatever You want doctors, justice. Yes. You I want, want justice for your grandmother. License. That's right. And right. all the other people that were there as well because – I know darn well, 49 people. I'm reading my grandmother's medical records, and I'm basically reliving the the last days that she had. And I'm finding it absolutely hard to believe that she's the only one that went through this. She's not. And and that's the thing is getting the, getting the medical records is so very, very important under all circumstances. And when you read them, you can see what went on during this period. And that's even if you were there. I mean, if you, right. I was with my mom day in, day out, but there were so many things I did not know until I got the medical records and read what they put in there. And that was so enlightening, but also heartbreaking, just heartbreaking to read it. But it's important that you do look at that. And the thing is that attorneys... If, there, if hospice is involved or, you know, if a long-term care facility and they look at the fact that your grandmother was 85 and now you've got the situation of COVID, they look at that and they think, well, you know, it's just her time. It, you know, it's just a sad thing, but she got COVID and she died. You know, get over it. No. Right. No. 
we're not getting over it because you mistreated somebody that we loved and this didn't happen naturally and it didn't have to be this way and we're not just going to accept because you say accept no correct exactly but I think the fact that she tried so hard to help other people makes it difficult because she understood, she knew when this was happening that it was wrong. And because you couldn't be with her, you don't know what she was thinking, you know, at that time. Exactly. And you couldn't help her, but you can't blame yourself for it. You need to place the blame, as you're doing, on those people that were responsible, that locked everything down, especially in New York, that locked things down, that did not let you come see her, that did not provide adequate care for her, and that gave her morphine and Ativan that should have never taken place. There was no consent for that at all. No, there was not. <clears throat> we didn't even have knowledge that they were giving this to her. <clears throat> like I said, it was just such a shock that she was healthy, her vitals, and everything's good. That's what we were told. Everything's good. Well, if someone's healthy and up and walking and they're doing good, why in the world would you give them something to slow them down? Exactly. And you know the answer to that, so that she didn't get up and walk out of her room, so that she wasn't helping other people. It was easier for them to give them drugs, to lock them down in their their rooms. And um, Sarah, the nurse, from last week was saying, you know, from Canada, and she was saying they took their wheelchairs away from them so that they could not get out of their room in the lockdown. You don't do that to somebody. No. You don't. I, I just can't understand how we have murderers, you know, being sentenced to prison. Dr. Kaborkian, he's in prison. Uh, we have drug dealers being sentenced to prison for murder. But we're making an exception for this. I'm kind of finding it weird how our government almost is, kind of checking boxes saying, well, we'll accept this, but oh no, we can't accept this. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it's a plan. I mean, you have to realize it does make sense to them because they're saving money, because it costs them money to keep the elderly alive. It is much cheaper to euthanize them, get them out of the way, move aside, get another bed for somebody else. They've lived their life, and it's time to let them go. That is wrong. That is not the way we look at human life. It is inhumane. There is something seriously wrong with anybody who is involved in that and who would give somebody morphine, Ativan, fentanyl, Seroquel, Haldol, all these drugs, knowing that that's going to end their life. It hastens their death. And right. that is premeditated, condoned murder. And that is happening to our loved ones day in and day out, and people have no clue what's going on. And you, you talked about signing um, the post form, 
And yes. that's one of the things with Halo Voice. And I know since you've been in our group, Murdered by Hospice, that you know we post things like this often. But halovoice.org, which I mentioned earlier, don't sign a post. Don't sign a DNR. Don't sign a living will. There are documents out there. The one that they have is a life-affirming medical directive, and it states what you do want and what you don't want. And with doing that, you need to do that before you get in a situation where you can't make decisions on your own. And it states as long as I'm able to make decisions, I'll make my own decisions, but if I'm not – This is who I trust to make those decisions. And you want to make sure that that person knows what it is that you want done under any circumstance so that they know what what you want. So my dad's 93 and lives with us, and we have that. And if, you know, something were to happen, he can't make his, you know, decisions for himself – I'm there, and I know what he wants. I know what he doesn't want. But I'm terrified to take him to a hospital at all because I am concerned that if he does go in, that they might not let him out. Right. And just to share a little something with you and with the audience, um, last he's, he's now visiting my brother, and he fell on Friday and hurt his arm, wound up, they took him to urgent care. Urgent care would not take him in. He had to go to the emergency room. And my brother went in and sat with him for about six hours. He has a broken arm, and they've put it in a sling, and, you know, we're, they're taking care of that. But my brother, who is kind of a hermit and doesn't leave, doesn't like talking to people so much, but he was in the hospital, and he made it very clear to them that you're not keeping my dad. He's coming back with me. So whatever you do, do it, and he's coming back with me. And I was so very proud of him because it's not within his nature. But there was a lady there talking, and he overheard her saying that, you know, they were talking about signing her husband up for hospice. And she oh, said, uh, you know, well, I guess that's what we're going to do. And my brother, unlike him, said, I wouldn't do that if I was you. And he told what happened to Mama. And oh. completely out of character. But he did it because he didn't want this lady to go through what our family went through and have them hasten her husband's death. So you have to, like you're doing now, you have to tell your story, you have to tell it often, and you have to warn people. And a lot of times, you know, something happens and you can say to somebody, this is what happened. I I make opportunities all the time to tell people about what happens to people if you trust without verifying. Right. Because I think it's important to speak up for the elderly because they don't know. They just, we didn't know, you didn't know, and, you know, all the other people, you know, in our group murdered by hospice didn't know that their loved one was going to be executed in a cruel way. And, you know, when they say, oh, this will help them breathe, no, it will help them stop breathing. Right. Oh, this will keep them from being anxious. No, because it will keep them from being able to eat or drink. It keeps them from being able to cry out. They can't think. They can't speak. And their family sits by just in total shock of not knowing what just happened to their loved one. There is no humanity 
There is no humanity in the way that people are now being treated by hospice. No, there is not. There, there is no peaceful out with this. There's, there's no even thinking that your loved one died in their sleep. You know, I would love to think that, you know, my grandmother went on her own terms, but she didn't. No. No. And she they went on someone that. else's terms. They, they will tell you, oh, she died in her, you know, she died peacefully in her sleep. And you're going to believe that because that's what you want to believe. Right. But you know that's not true. And especially when you get the medical records and start reading them and you know they gave her morphine, that she was allergic to it, you know she tried pulling the IV out. So they made a thing, oh, well, then we've got to give her Ativan because she's anxious. We've got to give her something yep. to calm her down. And so they add that on top. And they wrong. did. In every sense, it is wrong. So I um, want to at this time, I know you have several family members that are on the line. So if mm-hmm. anybody wants to make a comment, if you select one on your phone, it will put you in a queue, and you can either ask a question or make a comment. So we'll see if if anybody has something else to say. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I was given a copy of a hospice document about the drugs that they use, and in every case, if the patient was coughing, if the patient was in pain, if the patient was anxious, Um, If the patient was having a hard time breathing, everything in this hospice document for at-home care, comfort care, stated give the patient a dose of morphine. If the patient is still experiencing whatever the symptom was, give them another dose of morphine 30 minutes later. If the patient is still anxious, give them Ativan. Forty-five minutes later, if the patient is still, you know, anxious, give them Haldol. So in a three-hour period, if this patient, according to the directions of this comfort care kit that is by an official hospice, within three hours they had been given two doses of morphine, one dose of Ativan, and one dose of Haldol. And as a person gets older, the effects of these drugs are much stronger so what did you just do to that person? Yeah. And, right, is there any wonder that, that people die? Not to me. No, absolutely not. You know, I'm in um, addiction treatment. I've been sober for three years. And one thing that I had said in the group was our doctors that specialize in addiction treatment make it very clear that if you are on an opiate or an antagonist for opiates, that you are not taking any form of benzodiazepines, period, because of respiratory distress. Right. So I don't understand why another doctor would allow it. It makes no sense. Well, it doesn't make sense until you realize, you know, the ultimate, you know, plan. And that, for the person to stop breathing. Sad. It's sad and it is sick. It's sick. And the the whole time, the the hospice nurses are trained, literally trained, on how to manipulate the families. 
Yep. And I say that uh, because Marty, if she's listening, our producer, had gone to, um, had thought about, you know, helping out at hospice, and she went to um, indoctrination, I'll call it, and they said, they told them, oh, okay, well, you know, you need to go to the patient and say, you know, you've lived a long life and, you know, it's, it's time for you just to let go and, you know, don't burden your family and, you know, you need to tell your family it's okay, just let me go. And then you need to go to the family and tell the family you need to let your loved one go. They've lived a long life and you just you need to let yeah. them go and you need to tell them that it's okay to go ahead and die. It's okay. I'll be okay without you. Yeah, they no. teach them this, and this is That's, what they're supposed to say to the patient and the patient's family. Ugh. How could you be a nurse and do that? And I'm not saying, please, if we have any nurses listening, because I know that uh, <laughs> my my uh, friend Michelle Young-Doers, who was a hospice nurse, you know, she's probably listening, and she wasn't that way. She didn't do that to patients, and she was conscientious. And Sarah from the other night was conscientious, and she didn't do that. And we've had nurses before. They don't do that. They're not part of this agenda. Right. But there are many... Right, and but there are many that are, and they just give this drug, never thinking about it. It doesn't matter. That's a person laying there in a coma, not thinking that we put them there with these drugs and that within three to seven days they're going to take their last breath and we're going to tell their family, oh, you know, it's all over now. They're not in pain anymore and, you know, their life is going to be much better. Who are you kidding? Right. For years, people, that's what we thought. We accepted that because we thought that they were compassionate, because initially they were, and we believed them. And you know, I know in, in my case with my mom, my dad had been the hospice chaplain there at that facility for many years. So we had no clue that anything like this could happen. And, you know, he's, like, when he finally realized it, he was totally shocked and, and he feels guilty. He feels like, well, it's my fault because, you know, because I didn't know and, you know, they killed my wife. And, you know, he feels okay. like, you know, it's my fault. And, you know, we've told, it's not your fault. He goes, I should have never let them take her. So right. we all live with yeah. a grief. Common feeling. You know, what if and, and if onlys. You know, you did the best you could for your grandmother, and she sounds like she was quite, you know, a strong woman and, you know, loved her family and loved people and did, you know, absolutely everything she could to protect other people. She did. So um, when you did the reviews, uh, I'm assuming that they were not sweet reviews. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, has anybody approached you? Um, after um, you I will review? tell you the truth. Um, when I posted the link for people to listen tonight, I have had several friend requests from nurses from the facility that my grandmother was in. I haven't messaged them yet because I'm assuming I'm probably going to get some hate. But I'm also hoping that maybe I get some answers, you know. Um, 
months ago, I had found a young nurse online that worked on the same floor that my grandmother died in. She recognized uh, our grandmother's picture on my cousin's Facebook, and she was really struggling, having nightmares and things about what she had witnessed on that floor. So my hopes are that, you know, maybe all of them are reaching out to say something positive or something that will help us understand and maybe bring this place to its knees is what I'm really hoping for. But I'm kind of preparing for the worst and the backlash. You know, when I posted it, I said, I'm not pointing out by any means, you know, um, that all nurses are bad and evil and we're in on this. But there are some that were. Well, to them, I would say, if they are listening, and if they indeed have compassion and ethics, values, morals, that there is a group, it is United States Frontline Nurses, and they are nurses that are standing up together against what has been going on with the COVID lockdowns and with the different things that have been done in the long-term care facilities. And they are always open for new members to come in if there is any retaliation against them or if they just want to come in and unite with them and, you know, kind of lay low under the radar. They know things are going on. They're supportive, but, you know, it's difficult if you're working a job and you have family to right. take care of, to just, you know, walk away from your job, you know, being a nurse for all these years. But if you see something that's wrong and you accept it and you know that it is wrong and that people are dying from neglect, abuse, murder, then it is wrong for you not to speak up and stand up to protect them. And there are places, groups that are in place to assist with that in the whistleblower's status right so you know i encourage anybody if you know if you know something's wrong you need to speak up and if you are a nurse and you're listening we don't think all nurses are bad we have nurses in our group um also and voices for seniors which is a group that i believe nicole you are a member of which is i think how you found us right and they have a large following too because they're in new york city and they spoke up because they lost loved ones in the COVID lockdown so all nurses are not bad but if you're in a situation where these type things are going on there is abuse there is neglect there is murder going on i would strongly me personally is i would find another job in nursing where i did not participate in doing these things because right. they are wrong, they're against people, they're against God, and it, I could not live with myself and get up the next morning. Now, I know that, um, and I'm sure April Donovan doesn't mind me mentioning her name, but I know that she has um, been talking to some of the hospice nurses, and they have been very um, attacking and saying that she doesn't know what she's talking about, and oh. her mom would be. Have you seen those? I have, and it is. They should be ashamed of themselves. Yes, 
and told her that she should be, you know, that there's that her mom was probably ashamed of her and that, you know, it's no wonder your mom didn't like you. And, I mean, things in there that are downright cruel. April yeah. lost her mother the same way I lost my mom. Her mom was euthanized. And she knows it. She's got the medical records. She's seen what happened. She was there. And she has these nurses attacking her and saying that she's lying and that this is not what happened. You don't know what happened. She does. Right. And all of us who are in this group, uh, Murdered by Hospice, we know what happened. We saw it with our own eyes, and we've seen the medical records. And if you gave those drugs in the combination, the duration, to anybody who was healthy, they would die within a short time frame, too, with no disease. So how can you dare say that it is not murder? Anybody would take them, let those nurses take the same drugs that they gave my mom, they would die. Yeah. So you can't say to me that it was that they weren't murdered, that you were merciful and that, you know, they were just dying. No, my mother wasn't dying. No, April's mother wasn't dying. So it's they're delusional, and when you mm-hmm. and when you start attacking people the way this nurse is attacking April, not only are you delusional, you are cruel. So I, I just I, I don't understand how people can be a part of that, and you know some of them can't. And they don't. They stand up. Uh, Michelle Dewars, Ron Panzer, you know, some of them will stand up. I had a nurse on a couple of years ago. She came undercover, did not give her name, and talked about some of the things going on. And she said, you know, I don't want to give my name because where I'm at, and as long as I stay under the radar, I can help those people. And if I give my name, I won't be able to help them. Right. So there are good people out there. There are good people, but there are a lot of people that are not good. And that's why uh, there are resources that I mentioned earlier for you to check to protect yourself and to protect your loved ones because that's what it's about. So it's, you know, it's our job to do that. It is, not to mention, you know, we're all going to get old at some point. And if something's not done now, then it's just going to keep going. Well, you're absolutely right. And it's gotten worse and worse. And I think the COVID has given people an excuse to just knock them off. I mean, you know, good grief, 49, 75 in one facility, yep. and yep. the flags aren't raised. Right. So, Marcia, Marty, do we have a caller? Yes. yes. We have two lined up here. So we'll take okay. area code 778 first. You're live and on the air. Uh, hi there. This is uh, Rob calling. And, hi, Rob. Uh, yeah, my father, my father was murdered in the same way. Uh, and it's horrible. It's not right what's happened to uh, Marsha's mom, and it's not what, uh, not right what happened to your uh, loved one. It's not right what happened to my uh, father. 
And I've been finding for myself the after effects of that is um, horrendous. We don't grieve, or I don't grieve, in the same way that someone who's had a natural death. I always have in the back of my mind, you know, what if I took them home earlier? What if I reacted earlier to protect them? And then when I grieve, you know, I break down into tears I can't control, and I get to levels of retching, you know, at very, very deep levels. Mm-hmm. And I find that because I've, I've went to the, done the reviews and I've submitted the complaints and all of that has come back uh, not in a solid fashion, I find that having not been able to get that sense of justice does not uh, facilitate the closure of the grieving. So I find that very difficult, and I'm wondering if uh, if you find that uh, as well. Do I find it? I absolutely do. Um, it's been four years this month that my mom was murdered, and I have the what if and the if only I had done this, and if I wake up in the middle of the night real thirsty because I've been working out in the yard all day, and my mouth is dry, and my immediate thought is this is how my mom felt because she didn't have any water. This is what they did to her. And it goes through a vicious cycle because then I've got, I relive my mother's murder all over again. And, you know, sometimes it makes me cry, um, and it's going to be a couple hours before I can get back to sleep. We feel the guilt because we didn't, do anything, but what you have to understand, Rob, is you did everything you could knowing what you knew, and you can't take that guilt on and feel like it's your fault, it's your responsibility, because you did everything you could. What you can do now, and you have, because you've you've come on my program and talked about it, what you can do now is to warn other people and find some way to release the guilt, not the anger, because you have every right to be angry at those people who murdered your dad. But you can't take that guilt on yourself because you did what you did based on your knowledge. You had no clue that this was going on. So the what ifs and the only if I had done this, you can't beat yourself up like that. And in times like that, you need to find something, and I say this, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, because I have to tell myself this, find something that interests you. If, you know, for me, it's like it's painting. But, you know, I don't know, walking, you know, walking in a garden or, you know, taking pictures of something or, you know, a coloring book or, you know, playing solitaire. Whatever it is, find something that will take your mind off of it so that you don't let it eat you up because your dad would not want you to let this eat you alive and to carry all of this burden of guilt. It's not yours to bear. It is the responsibility 
of the facility that your dad was in when he was euthanized. It's their burden, not Mm. yours. So find a way to divorce yourself from that, find something else to do, pull your mind from it, and accept you did what you could based on the knowledge you had and going forth. Do what it is you're doing now because you are talking about it, you're telling other people, but find a way to let that go because your dad does not want you to carry that burden. Does that make sense? Yes, sure. The other uh, problem that I had was in my very first year of having to deal with it was because I've been born and raised in a um, a mainstream Christian denomination was this area of forgiveness. How do I forgive someone who treated my father so badly, either as an institution or as a, as a person. And when I went for some psychological uh, help, uh, that was kind of beneficial. And the guy said to me, uh, he said, you know what, forgiveness is conditional. And it's not automatic. Unless the the place or whoever did you the wrong is going to apologize and provide a rationale for their actions, uh, you don't have to forgive them. And as soon as that came to as a realization for me, uh, a lot of the nightmares that I was having about my father screaming in pain and screaming out for me because he was neglected, that sort of subsided. And I felt just a big burden of relief lifted from my shoulders when I came to the realization, you know what, I don't have to forgive these people. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely, that's what was on the tip of my tongue. You don't have to forgive them. You do not have to. There is no forgiveness for them because they will not admit what they've done, and they do not accept responsibility. Therefore, you do not have to forgive them. You're absolutely right. Um, Marcia, we have one more caller. Okay. (laughs) Yes, we have one more caller, area code 315. You're live and on the air. Hi. Hi. Hi, how are you? We Nicole, can hear you. It's, it's Michelle. Hi. Hi, Michelle. <laughs> Nicole, I just wanted to thank you for advocating for our grandmother. I am the cousin she talks about. Um, <laughs> but I understand exactly what that gentleman beforehand is talking about because for nearly a year, Nicole and I uh, and other family members have went from transferring her to another facility to uh, bringing her home with us to finding her own home with nursing uh, availability and so forth, and we just got blocked every way until it was too late. I am so, so sorry that that happened. Um, um, I, I just, I just uh, don't know what to say. We need justice for everyone in that facility and all elderly who has been murdered by hospice. 
Uh, it is a horrible, horrible thing. We, my mother's birthday was uh, January 19th when we demanded, demanded a video call with her because just June. two days prior they said they were waiting for her room to open up because she was fine. She was tested. She she was tested with nothing going on with COVID. There's no record of COVID um, that she even had it uh, on her. And we demanded a video, and the site that we had seen her in, we knew that right then and there we needed to get her out. And then two days later, they find her at shift change. It, yeah. It's just appalling. Um, it is. When you have records that have her death certificate saying failure to thrive with COVID, having her cremation saying natural causes. Um, there's so there's three different scenarios of her death, yet they can't um, keep their record straight because their facility doesn't have anything electronic. It's all handwritten. So it makes it difficult to know what they've altered and what they haven't. Right. Well, no, actually, that's better because if they've handwritten everything, it, you know, it's very easy if it's electronic to go in there and change it, very easy. If it's handwritten, it, it's kind of tough to go in and change what you wrote. Well, I guess so, so because there is one document I think Nicole found that says that, uh, Nicole, that didn't it was dated. We, now, we were not notified, and she was pronounced at 11.05 p.m. on January 21st and come to conclusion that we find a letter in her thing dated the 21st saying yep. that she passed away on the 19th. Yeah. So now, I don't know if it was the 19th or the 21st. That's what we're yeah, trying we to were, figure out. Now, right. The video we that we've seen. Right. Now, the video when we seen her in the afternoon on the 19th looked like she was on her way. That's She really did. From what they told us, she was ready to go down to the third floor again. And to see that video, there was no way she was ready to go to that third floor again. And then to find that letter saying that she passed away on the 19th, dated on the 21st, did they do that letter in 45 minutes from midnight? Right. I don't understand. So you saw her walking on the 19th? No, no. On no. the 15th, on the 15th of January, they said she was fine. They were waiting for a room on the 3rd floor to open up so she can go back to her own surroundings on the 15th. Okay, um yeah. on between there because we had no way of contact with unless buying the burner phone which they would not help her use. Um, we demanded a video um, Zoom yes. with her um, because they kept saying she's okay. She's going downstairs. When we seen her on Zoom on the 19th in the afternoon, it's okay, Mom. Um, on the on the 19th. On that on the 19th. Okay. She could barely look. She could barely speak. Um, she could, she was in a hospital bed, looked like she was, um, 
being murdered. She was drugged. Being murdered. Right, drugged right there in front of our eyes. Exactly. Um, and at that point, we said we need to do something. And we, Nicole, I, um, Nicole's dad, my mom, we kind of all got together and said, we've got to do something. And then next thing you know, two days later, the 24th or 21st, we get. Yeah. Yeah, they did. I mean, there's not any doubt from what you're saying. And Nicole is saying that they drugged her. Yeah. That's what they did. And it, you know, I'm with you. It's not. It is not right. There should be justice for that. And the fact that you were not able to see her since Easter, the Easter before, it's criminal. It's criminal. And I am so very sorry. But I hope, and as I was talking to Rob, that your family does not take the guilt of what you did or didn't do because you did the best you could with the information you had. You had no clue that this would happen. But now that you know, you've got your mom, you want to protect your mom, you want to protect your dad, and you want to let other people know. See, the only way that we're going to get any justice, if you can call it justice, is to keep people from enrolling in hospice and going through the same thing that we've all been through. That That's right. the only way we're going to affect anything is to warn other people. And if they don't listen, you know, it's very sad, but some people are listening. Even in our group, some people have listened, and they have not taken the avenue of hospice, and their loved ones have died naturally and not being drugged to death because they've listened and they've heard us And from our stories, we are trying to get the word out to other people. Do not just accept. Do your research. Look at these places. Talk to other people. And that, unfortunately, is the best that we can do. Right. So we have um, one minute left. Um, So, Nicole, I will give you the uh, floor if there's anything else that you would like to add. I just want to, once again, say thank you. This has been an amazing opportunity, and I truly appreciate your platform and for allowing me to use it to, like I said, bring my grandmother some life on what she did and also get the word out there on what happened with her and so many others. And I just hope to keep pressing forward and carrying on the work that she was doing herself. Um, You know, she always said that God has a plan, and I never believed that, but I believe that maybe this is what I was supposed to be doing. It's a shame, and it breaks my heart that this is what we had to go through to get there, but she always made it clear that there's a reason behind everything, and I have to take that, accept that, and just press forward, and I just hope that this sits with someone and helps other people. And I just really, truly appreciate guys. Thanks. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, you know, for telling your grandmother's truth and her story. She sounds like an amazing woman. And follow that path and keep talking, keep telling your story. 
So thank you so much. You've got my number, so we'll you know we're still in touch through uh, you know Messenger and the Facebook and you know phone. Yep. So we'll stay in touch. All right. All right thank, thank you, you so, much. so much. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners and thank you, Marty. And we'll see you back on the 16th of June with Ron Panzer. So everybody have a good night. Bye. Bye.